is October 23 actually and I'm going to be reading uh, the next chapter it, there's no chapter number in the book so I'm not even going to try to um, give it a chapter number arbitrarily because I'm going to forget although I could probably just start from now you know what let's call this chapter 2 alright and it's called Groundation the reason why I think so is because for the sake of the podcast I probably want some numbers to ride with it so that um, I can start it and get my orientation better so the book doesn't have a chapter number it just have the chapter name but I'm gonna call it chapter 2 because we have done the introduction we have done chapter 1 which is um, chapter 1 part 1 which is from Babylon to Brooklyn Brooklyn and now we're doing chapter 2 which is groundation now again set up the scene I'm sitting here on the um, banks of the Niagara River by I think it's Black Creek this is called yeah, Black Creek comes out to Niagara River on a Sunday evening in autumn the trees have maturely changed so they have now moved mostly when I look across the river over to the American side I noticed that because I'm sitting on the Canada side looking over the American side I have um, we call this chair here the little $25 Walmart chair that you go to sports games with I have my coffee and uh, you hear the vehicle because the vehicle is going up and down the Niagara Parkway on the Sunday evening here but the trees them as I was saying they are not even any, any longer have that nice burgundy red they're more moving to brown now from my observation but then again my eyes is not the best eyes you can hear a motorboat motoring up what should this be downstream downstream because this is down it's going downstream on the Niagara River on the US side so that's the sounds in the background so just making sure that a little caveat a little disclaimer a little warning it's gonna be noisy I'm not using any headphone I just talking directly into the phone alright so we can pick up every noise and again this thing is not gonna be done professionally not now anyhow alright um, that's it so let's get into groundation now in terms of like a little prefix usually there's a lot happening and I would probably share some commentary on it there's a lot happening and frankly I don't want to get too much into the commentary and the things them, the things that I've observed because I need to actually read some more first and can apply some of the expressions of like the ability to express certain things simply with words I need to hone that skill a little bit so I have to read some more before I keep blurting out my my amateurish my my what what's the term I'm looking see the term I'm looking for is like my like you want to say a teenager um um see totally drawing blanks but before I, I, I blurt out my my ignorance <laughs> right and illustrate my ignorance with my lack of the of ability to 
to um, express myself clearly so I'm gonna read some more and get some more hopefully it will it will invigorate that so groundation and the book called born for dead by lori guns all right darkness had already fallen on the september evening in 1984 when i flew across the island into kingston after many many years of well many years not not too many it's just many after so many years of short visits i was coming back to my adaptive country to live especially coming back in 1984 to live Nervous with an anticipation, I pressed my forehead against the humming plastic porthole and remembered a prophetic conversation I'd had seven years before with John Womack, the professor who would become one of my dissertation advisors. It was the beginning of the fall term and the history department was having its annual reception for new and continuing graduate students. I had spent that summer in Jamaica, living in an enchanting, hard-drinking Irish, living with an enchanting, hard-drinking Irishman who taught elementary school in Montego Bay, and had returned to Cambridge full of confusion. I was coming to know all too well. I, that no Lego proper. I had spent that summer in Jamaica, living with an enchanting, hard-drinking Irishman who had taught elementary school in Montego Bay and returned to Cambridge full of confusion. I, had come, I was coming to know all too well. Jamaica was a shambles at that summer. This is 1984. Beset by economic crisis and political violence, and many of the teachers I knew in Montego Bay were quitting their jobs to leave Jamaica for good. This was 1984, Brian Jean. And a headmaster there had begged me to stay and teach. And the plight of so many school children made me wonder why I was coming back to church through an advanced degree. I walked into the history department. I walked into the history department party. Party. You know, I think they want to say partly. But I walked into the history department party, alienated by unquestioned privilege and power that emanated from the building neoclassical great space. The atrium where we gathered and I caught a glimpse of Womack standing on the fringes of the crowd. He was something of a legend to many of his students, the university's only Marxist historian. He had written a magisterial biography of the Mexican Revolution, revolutionary Emiliano Zapata and his lectures to which he came wearing jeans and cowboy boots, often centered on bitter subjects like the role of torture in Latin America regimes. One of my friends thought he resembled Jack Nicholson. He definitely had the same brooding force. I barely knew him then, except by reputation. But because he had lived in Mexico, I thought he might understand the disjunction that comes from straddling the abyss between the first world and the third. So is Jamaica doing under Manly? Womack asks, and I describe the island's travail along with my own. When I was finished, he just shook his head. If you want me to, he said, I can paint the scenario for the next 10 years of your life. He expected candor 
his, his unexpected candor was a breach of the usual decorum that prevailed between faculty members and their anxious, worshipful students. So I held my breath and waited for my fortune to be told. You'll be going back to Jamaica again and again, Womack said softly. Oh, so I have to say it softly. You will be going back to Jamaica again and again, Womack said softly. And the place will never be anything else to you than what it is now. A loved mystery. But you won't ever be really comfortable here again either. And eventually, you'll become kind of an exile in both places. <laughs> That's my life. Anyway, that is my life. That is why my name um, Jeez, Mikey Spice of the one I said. I am, I said. And I da 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 Leaving me lonely. Still, that says a re remix of Jeez, Neil Diamond. I am. I am, I said. Yep. LA is fine in the summertime. Anyway, let's keep going. Exile in both places. This was more than I'd bargained for, and, and a Zen walk from the master. How do you know this? I asked. Womack gave me his best Jack Nicholson smile. Mexico, he answered. I never forgot that conversation. It was a prelude to the doctoral wranglings that came later, when I would leave my carrel in the library, exhausted by the melancholy that comes from too much reading and stopped by Womack's office for encouragement. But now I had chosen to leave that world with all of its seductive familiarity for the uncertainty he had warned me about years before. And I remembered his words as a kind of valediction. Peering into the blackness of Jamaica's night sky, I conjured up the landscape below from memory. Beneath us was the grand ridge of the Blue Mountains. 7,000 feet of ferny rain forest blanket, black, blanketed by clouds. The countrymen had dug terrace cultivations into those mountainsides, steeper than a Mayan pyramid. I thought of them trudging home in the darkness with cutlasses tucked under their arms, wearing jaunty wool caps sent home by their relatives in England or America, and walking in rubber wellingtons with soles caked by red clay. I pictured the crops they coaxed from the cultivations, the same ones they had sustained, that had sustained Jamaica, Jamaica for the past 300 years, cassava and yam, Irish and sweet potato, dasheen, leafy green callaloo, breadfruit and papaya. I learned, but kept forgetting, which of those were indigenous to the island and which had been bought in, first from West Africa and then from India and the Pacific. The slave ships brought the first aki, the bright orange pod that holds its tender yellow fruit in a tight, poisonous embrace until it's, the pods open and release the deadly hypoglossin, making the aki safe to eat. A lot of nice just passing through. The breadfruit came with the captain, with captain Blight. Blight! Blight, I don't know why the name Blight comes. Blight, which show is that? Blight is a show with an alligator, a cartoon show with an alligator and a, a, a man with a hook on. Peter Pan, Blight. Yeah. The breadfruit came with Captain Blight, 
and the alligator trying to eat the man and the man using him foot spread eagle kind of thing for the alligator jaw and the alligator try yam him <laughs> and when the pump blight the breast came with captain blight and the bounty from tahiti all of these food subs came and went across the oceans in the same imperial commerce that brought the slaves all right um i'm going to pause a little bit and just reflect a little bit on when she talk about the blue mountain ridges because something came to mind but let me take a sip off of my coffee and it's not blue mountain coffee I was, who, who walking around here miss lady i'm recording you know in fact you know what <laughs> i'm going to pass a minute so my wife is actually here and yeah bless you um i'm walking around recording me um and which is one of the reasons i can't even just go flow free flow in my mind in my mindset because this is my biggest um scrutinizer <laughs> you understand me so i'm not flowing like freely like watch she even have a camera on me right now it's, hello this is my little flow you know and and it's not to be recorded okay yes no you, you have recorded no but you know you know you're like standing right there no, because I'm trying to catch a picture now. I'm not. Oh, like, yeah. I thought you were recording. Okay, if you want to catch our picture, <laughs> no problem, mommy. Okay. I thought you were recording. <laughs> okay, I didn't know that. And I'm not even gonna edit this out, you know. I'm going straight into it. That's so your okay. so your voice is in, 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 in the um in my podcast. Alright, so alright, so I kinda trying to it's usually me on the phone alone. Um so I can just free flow, but um <laughs> Let me just go back into the hole because even the way my voice so oh yeah yeah all right let me just pause okay i'm back now yeah to pause out a little bit of it and yes oh yeah um you don't you're not married for many years um successfully and happily um uh, yeah i know i'm kissing up hey <laughs> In my shoe, you kiss up all day long. <laughs> so, um, you're not married for many years without learning that. You're not married for many years without learning how to navigate um, personalities and to know your place. So, me know my place, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I know that's another um, debate. But at the end of the day, in life, happy wife, they say, happy life. And I know some people say happy spouse, happy house. Anyway, moving on. And you also know not to stay on that topic too long either. So moving on to what I was trying to um, 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 reminisce in regards to the ridges of the Blue Mountain. So when um, the writer talk about beneath us was the Grand Ridge of the Blue Mountain, 7,000 feet of ferny first blanketed by clouds. It brings my mind back to my days um not my days but to um my father who was born and grown up in Bangaridge, up in the mountains here up in portland mountains they call a place called Bangaridge, just below blue mountain or just across from blue mountain one of those mountain ridges and when she talks about the farmers you know one of the things that we as jamaicans need to do better 
is to preserve our history. The parents need to talk about the, talk about their past to their children and pass it down. Because if it's one thing I kind of regret is that my father, I wish we had the opportunity was for my father to sit down and tell me plainly about his youth. He would tell us about his youth, you know, but he would tell us about it in a more of a scolding manner. So his, his manner would be like, you know, we have our privilege, you are on a hat, on a baby, you know, living in a house. Me, you suffer living in a bush, kind of thing. I, I, you know, my life was rough. It's always telling you how rough his life was, but not getting into the details of it. You understand me? So the fact that, you know, I, in fact, you know, I'm even exaggerating because at the end of the day, I'm mixing up the source of the information because he never really got into it. He would allude to the fact that his life was rough and he had said that he dropped out of high school or not high school, but school from the age of 14 and never went back to school then and he just started hustling. But the story that I wish he had told me more about was the story that his elder brother told us in a Zoom call last year when my father passed and we were trying to kind of you know, at the last minute or after the fact, get some family history. And his elder brother was telling me about growing up a little bit about what happened up in Bangaridge, up in Portland. Here. So, up in the Blue Mountains, it's very cool, cool. And they call it white man land to some extent because, our, in fact, there's a place called EITES up that side. Europe in the tropics when you come around from the St. Andrew side. In fact, Bangor Ridge, that road that my dad to go up to where my father, you can use that road and continue straight into St. Andrew. So you can cut across on the north side to the south side or vice versa. You can traverse the north and south of the island with that same road from Buff Bay and end up down by garden town Mona side cyclists use it a lot to get around the island from that side um, but my father was he my sister had filed for him and he became an American citizen in his 50s and um, I remember my father said ah boy at the age of 55 I get a second chance in life I never forget it and I said, boy, if or a third chance. And I said, boy, if at 55 you can consider a new start. Then for me, 55 did seem such such a far way off. So I was thinking I could make all the mistakes I need to make now because I can always start anew at 55. Now it doesn't seem so far away, ironically. Time sure flies. But anyhow, um, and to even imagine that I am actually closer at the age that my father was when he was looking to leave the island and I, I remember him being an old man to me and to consider that I'm um, that age now blows my mind but anyway um, so he returned to Jamaica despite uh, he, again he was filed for he got his his green card he was living in the states and he returned to Jamaica and he started farming up on his family land family land up is in Poland our family had a lot of land in Poland. 
apparently the, 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 the estate master we actually get our name from the estate master because he had fraps off or intermingled or he had some he fell in love with, with one of the uh uh geez what they call her uh, uh mulatto uh french um uh, a french black woman mixed uh she was lafayette i get to understand and then he she was mary mary lafayette or something like that and he, that is how our line came down but he had a lot of land and i actually inherit them name so yeah um they, they took away my umbopa uh, my shaka uh, my kabaka and call me give me some give me some 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 anglophone uh some 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 anglophone name <laughs> you have to take but these men laugh you know and give me give me some christian name you understand me so that is how that happened so but that person that 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 that, that ancestor had a bad temper i get to understand and he actually died in a duel and that's a fact that is recorded in the records the baptist church records that he died in a duel or died from from wounds sustained in a duel up in bangarage and he lost a lot of the land the land was old was called mount the owner mountain called mount oldstein consisting of hundreds of acres and the, the last um that during the duel so the but the family still had some land and my father went back and farmed that land until he passed he passed in 20 last year in 2021 i got the call and he just went as i said before but he was farming up in bangarage and we bury him actually up there in bangarage under the lemon tree that he said he wanted to be buried under where he was born up in the hills overlooking some valleys i i, I remember looking down and and trying and banger is standing up um, earlier this year when i went up to his gravesite and i was looking down and i'm pre I, I, I do not have the ability to 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 properly relate the kind of distance i was looking at but this i figure i was looking down at least a thousand feet or two thousand feet since seen seen a seen villages two thousand feet below beneath me and out in the distance it's a beautiful spot but it's scary to think of what it would be like without electricity at nights i know with my father growing up in that bank garage because i saw some spots if you're not careful and you slip and fall you're ending down two thousand feet down into some other village you understand me there's nothing to stop you but to imagine that that was normal for him and to see that he came to Kingston and transformed himself into a Kingstonian at a young age, came as a gardener. It, 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 it is something that we, we should, we, I, would have, I would have loved to have spoken to him more about when he was alive so I could understand it more. So thanks to Laurie Guns for letting me reflect on that. But gonna move on because I want to finish foundation today right continuing she was Nepal's novel a hot country lay open on my lap his vision of the west indies was like his brothers it served swerved between pity and contempt 
I had to put the book down. I need to read that. Get, let me note that book. Hold on. Okay, I've recorded that. She was Naya Paul's novel, Heart Country, lay open in my lap. His vision of the West Indies was like his brother's. It swerved between pity and contempt. I had put the book down after we crossed Cuba. And I read, The history of this patch of earth was written in blood. Pain was the only thing that, I, that had flourished on its red soil. Only in pain had they been self-sufficient. I had fallen to remembering my first trip to Jamaica, just in time to catch the fever after 1976 elections. By then, the two parties had been kicking power back and forth between them like a soccer ball for so long that only older people recalled elections without violence. Michael Manley was Prime Minister, but he was already in deep trouble with his own fractitious party and with the United States. And the island was flying with rumors of American plots to destabilize Manley's government. Hold on, let me put on my reading glasses. Philip Agee, a rogue CIA operative who turned into a whistleblowing apostate, had come to Jamaica in the fall of 1976 and identified several agents on the island. The American ambassador, um, Sumner Gerard, denied Agee's allegation, but that did nothing to quell the fears about destabilization. Manley retaliated with a program of socialist discipline that he called heavy manners <laughs> and the slogan was scrawled on every wall it was eloquent patois, patois that rallied, it was eloquent patois that rallied Jamaican to stand firm against the gun terror Edward Siaga was unleashing with the JLP hoping to stem, hoping to stem the rising tide of gang violence that engulfed Kingston Manley declared a state of emergency in the summer of 1976, detaining, locking up, 593 people. Some of them were leaders of the city's most dreaded gangs, and others were politicians from both parties who were suspected of being warlords. I remember that um, because I remember the talk about that. That's how Babsy Grange was actually locked up, and that was part of her badge of honor uh, of serving her part in the war. Um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a militant during the 70s and Bob Grinch is actually now as I read this book a minister, I think she's minister of, of, of culture <laughs> yeah she's minister of culture and something else in Jamaica right now probably sports and culture anyway I, oh yeah, before I even move from that I met Bob Grinch in person as a young man when I was living in, um, in, in Spanish town we had our first, second home. Well, first house that we could live in, cause that the whole situation is another story. That we had, had bought in my twenties. I was probably 24 when I bought that house. And our uh, 23 in Ensome Acres, Spanish town. And there was a river or a brook that run behind the community, right? And my house was on the border, so it run behind my backyard. And the developers had released the sewer into the river. They didn't treat the sewer. Well, they probably treat it and then release it into the river, into that brook. So we would get the stench regularly of feces 
um, just um, blanket the entire community and, and that was a regular feature for that community at least for us at the on the on the on the borders around the back and I was black leader for my block and I remember Bobsy Grange coming in she was in the opposition at the time and she was she was trying to rile rile us up to protest or uh, to destabilize do some destabilization um, within the area within the constituency and she met they, they introduced her to me and I remember and Babsy don't, don't hold me to it I mean we all know say you're a roughneck and not indicting you you did nothing different from most of the politicians if you ever listen to this um, I like Babsy still uh, he's a little roughneck so Babsy I like it and Babsy uh, and you pay your dues and Babsy um, was introduced to me and I remember when she shook my hand I remember feeling the energy of somebody who have lived a life that if they wrote a book, they had stories to tell. I could feel the energy of someone who have seen a lot in Jamaica and know the underbelly of what happens in Jamaica. I could feel that energy. I didn't do anything to destabilize. In fact, what we did was we, I remember renting or organizing so that we could rent a, get a, what they call it here, a flatbed truck and we had um a event with a church the church that i was at, used to attend in, in in portmore um word of life and they did some you know some some entertainment and some outreach and praise and worship in the community that one 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 saturday afternoon so anyway moving forward about what happened in 1976 so manly declared a state of emergency in the summer of 1976 detaining locking up 593 persons some of them were the leaders of the city's most dreaded gangs and others were politicians from both parties who were suspected of being warlords all right bobsy a warlord better than bounty all right manly waited to set a date for the coming elections until november when he went to Montego Bay and delivered one of the most charismatic performances of his career. He stood before a crowd of 120,000 ecstatic supporters in Sam Sharp Square, all of them mindful of the slave from whom the square was named. The man they lovingly called Daddy Sharp had led the 1831 uprising of such magnitude that it hastened the day three years after when England freed the slaves. Manley too was mindful of Sam Sharp's legacy as he whipped the crowd into a frenzy that blazing afternoon, finally naming December 15 as the election day. So in November, he tell the people that we have an election in December. Smart move. I watched him from this seashell pink roof of a bank in the square as he brandished the scepter everyone called the rod of correction. The rod was said to have been given to Manly by Ethiopia's Haile Selassie when young Manly visited East Africa in 1970. And by the time of his first victory in the 1972 election, it had become the PMP's most powerful symbol of authority and righteousness. The crowd went wild when Manly raised it high. His followers were calling him Joshua by then, the prophet who led them to the promised land. Lick them, Joshua, the crowd roared as if in one voice. Lick them with the rod of correction. I was new to the feverish world of Jamaica's leader worship 
and I had never seen anything like this before. But the young man who was standing beside me on the roof had witnessed many such performances. He explained that to the people of the sleepy tourist town, whose apartheid beaches had only recently been desegregated by the PMP government, Manley was like a god. At that moment, their leader was proclaiming that socialism held no terrors for Jamaica because what socialism really meant was love. Manly swept to victory in December. Despite the violence at, at polling stations and some dubious counting of votes, but the rift between PMP and JLP only widened after the election, with Siaga leading an intransigent opposition and his momentarily defeat, defeated gunmen sitting in their ghetto limbo, licking their wounds and spoiling for re revenge. Meanwhile, the island's elite saw Manly's victory as a signal of worse to come, and many of them left Jamaica for good. They had already sent their capital to banks abroad. Manly wasn't exercising any rhetorical restraint either. Soon after the election, he warned the JLP, the JLP IOPS, that if they didn't like the way he was running Jamaica, there were plenty of flights to Miami. I remember that. That was it, the famous three flights a day where a lot of people, there was a mass exodus of uptown Jamaicans to America. Anyway, my sister and her husband were living that, living that winter with their three daughters in the village of Anchovy near Montego Bay in a house they rented from a businessman named Lester Bell. Bell was a die-hard labor right, a labor wrong as manless people were then calling Siaga's supporters. I didn't even know that they used to call him labor wrong. It's true, yes. His hilltop mansion was built by workers who earned a dollar a day, toiling up the steep grade with 100 pound bags of cement on their backs and Bell treat them like beasts of burden. He claimed to love Jamaica as long as it felt, he felt it was his. But now he rallied against the damned freeness mentality that the PMP was spreading among the sufferers. His workers were demanding the new minimum wage of $40 a week, some of them sporting dreadlocks and wearing t-shirts with revolutionary slogans and images of Marcus Garvey over their hearts. They had there, there, there had been a spite of frightening crimes in and around Montego Bay, seemingly aimed at the rich. Lady Sarah Churchill was raped at gunpoint in her cottage in Round Hill, one of the most exclusive resorts in Jamaica, and the attack took on the, the contours of a political act. Lester Bell and his wife began smuggling their money out to Canada, making plans to leave. The Bells often came out from Montego Bay to check up on us, puttering and fretting on the breeze swept veranda where Mrs. Bell kept her treasured orchids. She bustled through the house with unnatural tiny, with unnaturally tiny size four feet, barking orders at the maid and the gardener, who only hummed softly to themselves as they washed and scrubbed and watered. When we went to town one evening to have drinks with the bells, their watchdogs growled at the bush sounds in the gardens and Lester went for the shotgun he kept trapped by the door, aiming it into the darkness and cursing with fear.
already sick with a bad heart, he died in Canada a few years later. His farewell to Jamaica was, as, was, was to strip the anchovy house of every wire and furniture, turning it into a derelict shell so that none of the locals would capture it after he was gone. Capturing unoccupied lands and dwellings had always been the sufferers' way of taking back what they think should have been theirs to begin with. Years later, my sister and I returned to that house. It was a ruin, captured by dampness and rot. The gardens had reverted to jungle, and the beautiful mahogany windows and doors were warped beyond repairs. Lizard and mangoes scuttled through the terrace grounds, and the only thing left of, of grandeur was a sweeping view of Montego Bay from the veranda. We remembered the nights after the bells had gone to Canada, when we threw open the doors of their forbidden palace to our anchovy friends, drinking overproof with the crew from Campbell's rum shop down the hill and getting them to teach us how to play dominoes and dance. My sister and I listened for the echoes of our laughter in the ghostly silence that had settled over the house. Almost a decade had gone by, gone by since then, but the Jamaica I remembered from the 70s had, had, had changed so much that the days of Michael Manley's heavy manners might have been from another century. Siaga was no prime minister, and Manley, once, a vi vigorous and once so vigorous and vocal, was ill with cancer and had gone into a kind of internal exile, a prophet without honor in his own land. In one of his more belligerent moments, Siaga had recently vowed that he and the JLP had the power to lock down Jamaica tighter than a sardine tin. It seemed that if he had kept his promise, all of the political energy of Manley's years had vanished without a trace. Coming into Norman Manley Airport, we circled over sprawling planes of lights that Kingston becomes at night. I thought about the man for, for whom the airport was named, father of the, fa the former prime minister and leader who midwifed his country into independence. In 1969, 30 years after Norman Manley founded the PMP and began the long struggle for nationhood, he lay dying in his home in the Blue Mountains foothills. His wife Edna, an artist and activist who had stood beside him in every political fight, bent down to catch his whispers. He was hallucinating, murmuring that he had a train to catch, but Edna begged him to, begged him to forget about that train and stay a little longer with the people who loved him. No, Norman answered, life here costs too much. Those were his last words. I didn't even know that. The last words of Norman Manley was life here costs too much. Um, interestingly, I need to stick up in here before I forget and, and refer back to my days at a law firm in Kingston when I sat down with a man by the name of Vivian Blake. Now, enough people think that when I say Vivian Blake, the, the, the mind go to the shatter, the shower posse leader, Vivian Blake, because Jim Brown ruled the shower posse in Jamaica, but Vivian Blake ruled the shower posse fractions in the United States. I went to take a sip of my, my coffee. Ah, boy, mocha. And so the, that's a gangster, Vivian Blake, but the, the Vivian Blake that I'm referring to is the Vivian Blake who was a 
QC, Queen's Council, and I think he was an OJ out of Jamaica. He was a councillor and he was a elder man at the law firm I, I was working at. So I would go down into the library in the basement of the law firm on East Street. And uh, it was the largest law firm in the Caribbean at the time, probably still is. And it had some very prominent people there on, as partners and as consultants. And Vivian Blake was a consultant, so too was David Core, the Honorable David Core from the PMP days, Manly days. And I remember talking to them or picking their brain for some history. And Vivian Blake explained to me that, never forget it, me with my bright eye, in a well iron pants and my farmer shirt and Miss Narratai sit down in the office in the in the in the in the library there surrounded by books big red books <laughs> don't know why I remember them being red covered um, and Vivian Blake shared with me that he was the one who was supposed to take over leadership of the PMP back in the 70s a 69 or something like that and he was supposed to take over from Norman Manley and a young P.J. Pattison led an internal um, campaign in the PMP for Norman Manley's son, Michael Manley, to become the next leader of the party. And that was successful. Michael Manley became the leader of the PMP and then he went on to win the elections um, because Norman had died. So Vivian Blake was pushed aside. And you can't help but think what would have Jamaican history be? Would Laurie Dunst be able to, what would her book be talking about? Because she talked a lot about Michael Manley and Edward Siaga. But there would have not been a Michael Manley and a Edward Siaga if um, Mr. Blake, who was talking to me and sharing this history with me, was not ousted from the leadership by um, P.J. Pattison. And the story goes on to say that Michael Manley was always, um, what's the term? Um, he felt obligated, he felt like he owed P.J. and he said that one day I'm going to make sure that you become the Prime Minister of this country. So which would kind of, um, it, 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 go, it, it relates to what happened in the future when Michael Manley um, resigned and, uh, and, and PJ became the Prime Minister and ruled for about 18 years, the longest ruling Prime Minister. So it's interesting how history changes on a dime. But I'm going to continue with the reading now. Where was I? Alright, so now Manley is passing. He says he got to catch a train. Edna said, leave the train. Don't, don't forget about the train and stay a little longer with the people who love the man. Now Manley said, no, no. Life here costs too much. So apparently he was having his dealing with his own demons from a Jamaica standpoint. Got right back around to Jamaica though. I should keep reading, but just want to touch that. Yeah, Jamaica is one of those places. You love it, you love it, you love it, but Jamaica can hurt you. The funny thing is though, one good day in Jamaica is almost as if it compensates for all the all the bad years. It's, it's a weird thing. It's a weird thing. So I'm going to keep going. The passport officer who rustled through my documents was tired and hot 
sweating under the slow twirling fans. There were so many Jamaican arrivals and departures stamped in my passport that he had to smile. When he finally found the work permit from the university, I imagine what he must have been thinking. Jamaicans leave their homeland by the thousands to seek work, but this foreign woman has found a job on the island. Between 1980 and 1990, 213,805 Jamaicans had come to the United States. 9% of its 2.4 million people, so all and 9% of the population, left Jamaica in 10 years today for the United States. Other countries sent greater numbers, but Jamaica had the highest percentage of population. The massive migration inflicts wounds that bear a strong resemblance to slavery's forced partings. Children often grow up without knowing their mothers, and the pain of separation had become a mixture of the island's soulscape. No one questioned the necessity of this endless sundering. Without the money that workers abroad sent home, the families would perish. So what are you going to teach us? The immigration officer asked playfully with an edge in his voice. I was relieved to be able to say that it was American history, not that of his own people. He stamped me my allotted time and I passed through into the echoing custom hall, customs hall where another sweating officer rifled through my duffel bags in search of contrabands and guns. My friend Nelson from the history department was waiting outside to take me to the new home I hadn't seen, a small faculty flat on campus. But we decided to have a drink first in Port Royal, the old pirate town on the tip of the same sandy peninsula as the airport. We both loved Port Royal for the echoes of the past. Although the place was nothing but a sleepy fishing village now, in the 17th century, it was the Sodom and Gomorrah of the English Caribbean. Every slave ship bounded with it for, the, for the English colonies unloaded some of his surviving passengers at Port Royal, while sea dogs like Francis Drake and Henry Morgan warred into the waterfront brothels. There were so many criminal enterprises that the women had a jail of their own. On a, on a bright June day in, in 1692, an earthquake and tidal wave buried most of the town beneath the sea, killing 2,000 people and heaving galleons into the streets. A friend had taken me to the graveyard of the little Anglican church in Port Royal, rebuilt after the quake, where one of the, its miraculous survivors is buried. He was a French <coughs> Huguenot named Solomon Bloody, a slave trader who was thrown into the sea by the earthquake's first shock and then rescued by a passing ship. We stood before his grave and wondered why he had been speared. <coughs> the evening cool the evening cool brought Port Royal's small population out into the streets where women set up currency in lanterns and little glass cases filled with fried fish and the cassava wafers called bami. Nelson and I bought beers and carried our greasy paper bags of fish to the waterfront, sitting on a beached boat and looking across Kingston Harbour into the city lights. They flickered like stars in the air current that waves waft over the water. <clears throat> when I went to use the toilet at Gloria's rum shop, I noticed that my favorite 
dirty mural, a tiny man disappearing between the mountainous buttocks of a grandly fat woman had been erased from the wall behind the bar. The barmaid told me that some image concoctions, right, the barmaid told me that some image conscious people from the Prime Minister's office in Kingston had asked that it be painted out. Siaga wanted to develop Port Royal for tourism and the mural was a little too raw. I know that one, you know, it's a thing with this, this fat lady and this skinny man and she's is is like Arnold. She's like, Arnold, where are you? And Arnold is disappeared in her buttocks. I've seen it. Sated and mellow, Nelson and I <coughs> Sated and mellow, Nelson and I went on to, to town in the late night hours when the city wears itself out into languor. Pedestrians loomed up in the milky loomed. Pedestrians loomed up in the milky clouds of exhaust that make night driving in Jamaica a test of concentration. The goats and cows trailing their ropes, gazing along the roadside. We sped by smokestacks of the cement com company and the Pillsborough flour mill. And I thought of the gunman named Copper, a Robin Hood from the 1970s, who used to rob the mill and distribute flour to the poor. Past this or now. Um, the way she described um, seeing goats and cows as she drive from the airport, that has changed. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. I can imagine what the airport road look like then compared to now because I drove from the airport road just where we in October now, except just last month, not even a month ago actually. In fact, this day last month, a month ago actually, because I went down there the 20th, no, a month and a day, I went down there the 20th, today the 20th, a month and two days, a month and three days ago, I went down there the 20th and today the 23rd. So, a little bit over a month ago I went there and I did that drive and I went up down Winward Road and then I went up Mountain View Road and I stopped at the house that we lived that I talked about earlier. Anyway, continuing. Right, a bike coming with some loud noise. I can hear the bike coming and it's gonna out my voice even more, but I'm gonna keep going. So we talk about we sped by the smokestacks of the cement company and the Pillsborough flour mill that I thought and I thought of the gunman named Copper Robin Hood from this 19th, you know what? Let me pause. That's a biking a bike of four um, riders um, just enjoying the last of the Canadian um, fall or mid-fall, I want to say. Now, funny enough, that just punctuates the contrast. I am talking about reading about Jamaica while I'm sitting here. Um, on the banks of the Niagara River in Canada. Uh, and I think about it, and I probably even send a little goosebumps. My journey um, is tethered to the stories in this book, Terrasta Beach. Anyway, I'm going to keep going. Oh, by the way, when I talk about flour mill, the thing I remember about flour mill is, when it, is that flour mill explosion that killed a couple guys and they were trapped in the mill for how long. I remember the TV 
was playing it on rotation about what was happening there. We were all just captivated by what was happening, the rescue efforts and everything back in the, I don't know if it's the 80s or 90s it happened. But yeah, I remember it, apparently the gas had, had methane gas or some kind of gas from, that's when we realized that certain things like wheat, the wheat, the wheat had, that was giving us some kind of gas that had accumulated and, and, and decided to, it was time to spread its wing in a, a fiery explosion and it brought down some of the structure and trapped some men and killed, I think, about a couple of them. Anyway, moving forward, God bless those souls. Moving forward, the Windward Road turned, <coughs> all right, the Windward Road turned from an industrial strip into Kingston thoroughfare at the corner of Mountain View Avenue. Yes, my old Mountain View Avenue. Where cluster from shops where my dad used to hang out had their wooden doors open to, to the sidewalk and night-long domino games were in full swing. You're right. Uh, through the open car window came the familiar click and slap of plastic ivory pieces being slid and slammed onto the board tables and the shouts, curses and laughters of the players. Fragrant smoke from jerk chicken stands floated in as well and I got Nelson to stop and let me buy from for tomorrow's lunch. The vendors came out only after the dark. Night food, I joked to him as I got back to the car and we both laughed at my intentional misuse of the phrase. But it, what it really means in perfect grammar of patwa is sex. See, this lady I teach, I never know so night food means sex. <laughs> this lady teaching me. Anyway, moving forward. <laughs> night food. I need to start, I need to read this book with a notebook beside it to take notes, you know. Because I, I didn't even know that night food in Jamaica was sex. Hmm. Oh boy, no wonder so much I was fat. Anyway, the sounds from the rum shop and in, yeah, and yeah. Literally, the sounds from the rum shop jukeboxes were the only thing that had changed. They weren't playing reggae anymore, and the songs were all rapid-fire dancehall tunes with lots of gun sounds on the track. We heard the real thing after we turned onto Mountain View Avenue and, squirt and skirted the shantytowns that lie at the base of Warwick Hill. Yep, sparse streetlights disappeared up into the dense darkness of bush-covered slopes that were the last best refuge of Kingston's outlaw, the Warkail man, the man, yeah, man, and them, they are the ones that came down to the house the night and robbed us. Warika is part of Long Mountain that stretches like a hump of wilderness across the city's eastern flank. The western ridge falls away into shanties that were that are crowned absurdly by a wealthy neighborhood called Beverly Hills, robbed with predictable regularity by workers, gunmen, and the eastern side of the mountain slopes down into the Mona Plain where the university is. Nelson and I listened to the gunshots together. They were single shots. Stalking, he said. Someone looking for someone. Oh, so shots. We heard the real thing. Oh, they heard the real thing. The gunshots after they turned onto Mountain View. Okay. And they were single shots. Alright, someone looking for someone. Looking up at the fortresses of that hill, I mentioned copper and Nelson told my told a story from the days 
at the university in the early 70s when student radicals saw Kingston outlaws as revolutionaries. Sometimes the gunmen themselves would materialize like phantoms at student union dances. But Nelson remembered another appearance, a night when Copper showed up at a medical student's flat with a bullet in his shoulder. Both men were awed by the legend's presence and his bravery. Nelson's friend had no anesthetic, but Copper ordered him to cut the bullet out anyway. Just do it, he said, and they did. The city noises evaporated once Nelson and I reached the campus at Mona. The rum shop soundtrack was replaced by croaking tree frogs and night wind. On a whim, I asked Nelson to drive to drive my, my by another favorite place of mine before we went home. The ruins of the church that had once belonged to the visionary preacher, preacher Alexander Bedward. It stood... You know, it's just recently I started hearing about this Alexander Bedward. is doing that other that cult preacher. Um, can't remember his name right now. That died the other day from Mobile. That this Bedward guy came on my radar. I need to read more about him. Anyway, it stood in the grove of Aki trees, just off a sandy lane in Augustown. The working class settlement close to the campus. The working class settlement close to campus, and I had often seen the white robed Bedwardite women walking up the Mona Road to that church on Sunday mornings. When their hymn singing would ring up through Augustown, I wanted to see the church by moonlight and to remember it's the revivalist shepherd who had prophesied the fall of Jamaica's white aristocracy. He was one of the long succession of apocalyptic souls driven mad by his country's sorrow, a Jamaican version of Swick's ghost dancer. He was their contemporary, in fact. Ah, bikes again. But this book... She's talking about Bedward, so maybe this is my opportunity to learn more about Bedward. Alright, I feel like I'm shouting, but I need to just wrap up on Bedward and then I pop. But no, she mentioned Bedward quite a bit, you know. Alright, you know what? I'm going to pause now and get into a part two to talk about Bedward. Alright, because this is almost an hour. So I'm going to put a stop here and I'm going to do this piece in a piece. Yeah, groundation is going to be done in two parts at least. Uh, foundation is pretty long i just flip about a dozen page so um, i'm gonna stop now and then we're gonna talk about we're gonna hear a little bit more about alexander bedward on part two of chapter two foundation in the book born for dead by laurie guns